Hey yo. Hey, we got it. Awesome. It's going to get louder each and every time we do this. Uh, I heard that you guys slept a little bit. Some people went to bed at five. That's crazy. Uh, where are my Gaga ballers at? Who played Gaga ball with me last night? That's right. Little shredders. Uh, I, I let you guys beat me. I promise. I let you beat me. That's not true. Actually, I forget who I told, but I woke up with it. My hip was hurting. I'm like, oh no, it starts now. Uh, it's probably the cold. Hey, but uh, last night we, we got to look at, specifically last night, that our God is our creator, and that's where when we, we have to look to him to find meaning and purpose, right and wrong, because those things have been established. It's our job to discover it. Now, what we're going to be looking at this morning is specifically where, where do we stand? Like, if this is who God is, where, where are we in the picture? If God is holy, what does that make us? And so we're going to be talking specifically about uh, a three-letter word uh, that I think often we talk about, but some often we don't understand. And so we're going to be looking at what sin is. And actually, there's a few things we'll be unpacking. But we're going to be in Ephesians 4, verses 18 and 19. And in honor of God's word, you guys, would you stand with me as we read it together? See, Ephesians 4, 18 and 19. And everybody stood. Just like that. We just stood up for worship. Why do we have to stand up again? Because it's good. All right. Ephesians 4, 18 through 19 says, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This is continuing off of uh, verse 17, talking about the people uh, that do not know God here specifically in the ways that they are living. And we're going to be unpacking it this morning together. And so would you guys pray with me? God, we, we need your word. Lord, we are so lost on our own. And so, Lord, we start off this morning by thanking you that you have given us direction. You have revealed yourself and you have revealed what you're all about to us. And so, Lord, it's our responsibility to acknowledge this is truth and to live in light of it. And so, Lord, that is only a work that you can do. And so we pray that you would do a work in this room, in this place, that every single person would see you as Lord, as King, and we would we would fold, um, we would give up our ways and we would follow after you closely. We thank you, Father, that you are a loving God who listens, who is not distant, but is near. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. You can be seated. All right, who, uh, who here has ever gotten into a prank war? A prank war. What is a prank war? A prank war is when a group of people starts pranking another group of people and then there's retaliation from that other group, you know? Like, you start out with a whoopee cushion under someone's seat, and they sit on it, and they say, oh, no, man, that's not cool. And so what they do is they will maybe go and, you know, like, put silly string in, in someone's hair when they're sleeping. And then it's like, oh, the, the other group goes back and forth, and maybe they'll start putting whipped cream in someone's hand, tickle their face when they're sleeping. <laughs> whipped cream in the face. Or shaving cream, whatever, whatever works. I think whipped cream would taste better. But... Uh, as prank wars go on, you know that retaliation grows and grows and grows. And there's a reason why at camp they emphasize no pranking. Not because usually the first prank is that bad, but it's usually the seventh, you know? Like it just continues to build up upon each other until someone goes to prison. And so uh, I got into a prank war when I was a senior in high school. And as the whole year went on, it ended up being like 
the senior guys versus the senior girls, which is just how it was working out. And we were just going back and forth on each other. And it, like at this point in the story, we, we're, we're like egging houses. Like we're at that level of like, we're, we're not damaging yet, but like it's pretty close. One bad throw could break a window, you know, or a good throw. Uh, and uh, at this point, it was getting close to the end of our senior year. Um, and it, it had been maybe like a month since a prank. And it, it was all quiet on the Western Front. Uh, and I, I was hanging out with some of the girls and they started talking about, you know what, it'd be good to get the guys back. Tony, would you want to join us in this? Oh, so foolish, right? Bringing the guy in to help get the guys. But of course, I say, yeah, I would love to get the guys with you. And immediately I'm texting my friends and said, just wait, guys, everybody report to Paul's house because we are going to be TPing Paul's house tonight. And so I went ahead and I changed all the contacts in my phone uh, to, to girls' names, just like other names so they wouldn't think anything of it. There wasn't group text yet. You had to send individual texts. And so uh, all of the names in my phone were switched to just random names so that when I'd be texting throughout the night where we were at, that everybody would be ready. All I knew is that the guys were going to ambush them. That's all I knew. Uh, we're going out throughout the night. We go get ice cream. We go hang out. Uh, and we're, the night's getting late. And the girls say, you know what? We're pretty tired. I think we're going to go home. And of course, I've like bought in at this point. And so I'm like, no, we need to get the guys. Like we have to go and get them. And so we went to the store. I convinced them. We bought a 24-pack of toilet paper, which I've, if you're buying toilet paper after like 8 p.m. and you're under the age of 21. Everybody knows. They know what you're doing. But bought the toilet paper and we drove up to Paul's house and we start TPing his house. And because I was the victim in this, I had to play double agent. Uh, I also threw a few rolls at Paul's house, just getting over the trees and over the house. But as we're doing that, in the middle of the night, the garage opens and I walk in the garage. And I look back as I'm walking in and I just see this look of fear on the girls' faces. And the look of fear was valid because I kid you not, 20 people came rolling out of the house with water balloons and airsoft guns and whatever they got their hands on. It wasn't water in the balloons, it was syrup. And, and it wasn't just that, they were throwing flour as well. They went big. The guys went all out. And of course, Paul lived in a cul-de-sac so two different cars, two different trucks pull out in the cul-de-sac and they park like perpendicular so you can't escape. So the girls get in their car, they're running, they're trying to get out and they're stuck. And so they're just getting hammered with everything. And I'm literally standing from inside like on the second floor looking down and just like, <laughs> I feel so evil in that moment as I'm seeing that happen. Uh, but uh, as soon as kind of all of the destruction ends, the girls get out of the car and every single one of them's crying. Of course, and you know, you see that and you're like, oh no, man, this is my fault. And the, the ringleader of them all, she looks at me and she like, she like kind of shouts it so I can hear it. She looks at me and says, I thought you were on our side. And it just like broke my heart because of course I never was. I was never on her side, but I made her believe like I was, you know, like I, I played the part. And I, I played them like a fiddle and I watched this happen and I saw the guys take it way too far and even damage the cars. We live in a world right now, every single one of you, whether you know it or not, we live in a world where just like people are taking sides left and right. 
You know, like there are sides for everything. Where, where do you stand on this? What do you believe about this? And the dividing line is getting wider and wider between people. And it can be like such a temptation and sometimes it could be good for us to just feel like, man, I don't even want to take a side. I want to take a third option and just opt out because of how divisive and angry and complicated things are. People have good arguments on both sides and it can feel like, man, everything, there's a dividing line. I just want to opt out. Do you feel that way at times? Like you just kind of feel indifferent or maybe you just don't want to take a stand on something. Uh, the picture I get is like, has anyone been to the Four Corners? Uh, there's uh, the Four Corners of the United States is a spot, it's Arizona, Colorado, uh, Utah, right? No, not Utah, I don't even know geography, you can tell me. Uh, New Mexico and Colorado, oh, Utah, thank you. Thank you for correcting me after I got it right the first time. Uh, and it's feeling like this kid right here is just like being in four places at once. You know, I don't want to be in one place. I want to be in four places, which is pretty cool. But sometimes our hearts can feel this way of like, we don't want to be in any of them or we want to try to be in all of them, try to make these little compromises. The thing that we're talking about today is that God has made abundantly clear in scripture that there are two sides. It's abundantly clear. There are those who are defined by their sin against him, enemies of God. And then there are those who are defined by God's righteousness, his children, on his side. There is no neutral. There is no middle ground. There is no other option besides those two. If God is the creator, if God is the one who has established right and wrong, and he's the one who is speaking everything about meaning and purpose, he's the one who's designed it, we have to listen to him to understand what is best. There's a line drawn in the sand and we're standing on one side or the other. Which as I say that, you might be thinking that feels a little harsh, right? Like you're either God's enemy or God's child. Like that seems kind of crazy. But the reason why that feels that way is because we truly have a small view of God. If, that, if it feels that way, it's you have a small view of God and you have a small view of sin. And both of those things are bigger than you think. Sin is way worse than you think, but I promise you our God is way better than you think. And so this morning, we're going to be unpacking this word sin because I think it's helpful for us to know. We have to understand the bad news in order to truly understand the good news. And so the way we're going to be doing it, if anyone's taking notes, I'm with you. I've got four questions we're answering. Number one, what is sin? Number two, what does sin do? Number three, who does sin impact? And number four, what can we do about sin? That's where we're going this morning. So the first thing, what is sin? What is sin? We have to start here. We have to define it. You see, in scripture, when people would, when like scripture was first penned, people understood this idea of what sin is. I think it, we have to unpack what it is. Sin is any thought or intention or action that goes against God's character. Sin is any thought, intention, or action that goes against God's character. Literally, to sin comes from this idea of missing the mark in archery. Like if you were aiming for the bullseye, you're, you're missing the entire target. Like it's missing what you were intended to hit. So to sin is to miss the mark. Last night we talked about how God created each of us in his image. He's written his name on our souls. And so to sin is to live like that is not true. That you belong to no one that you are not designed by God. 
To sin is to miss the mark of what God intended for us. And that means to sin is to live unlike God. It's to live in a way that pretends like he doesn't exist. It's to to follow your own heart instead of following after your creator. It's to consider like, I've got this all covered on my own instead of looking to the one who made you and has established all things. It's to do things solo without him. And you see, God is holy, meaning he's completely separate. He is perfect. He is not, he's like the opposite of sin because sin is everything that is anti-God. And so in other words, sin is the antithesis of God's character, is the antithesis of who he is. You see, sin's been around for a long time. You don't have to go far to find sin in scripture. You open up to the third page on chapter three of Genesis and that's where sin starts. When Adam and Eve decide that they were gonna take matters into their own hand, that they were going to be like God and try to decide right from wrong. God had said to do one thing and they said from that point they were gonna do something else. And from then on, humanity has been dealing with sin. This inclination in every single one of us to do things our own way. Every one of us struggling with that. You see, when we decide to make up our own rules, to define what's right and wrong, to do things our own ways, it's detrimental. It's not the way we were designed to live. And so what is sin? It's all things anti-God. All things anti-God. What does sin do? We find in our passage that we read right here, looking at verses 18 and 19 again. Talking about the Gentiles, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Paul is writing to to a group of new Christians at this point in Ephesians, and he's talking about how the Gentiles, the people who are not Jewish, the people who didn't grow up with the, the Old Testament and following after God, were living a certain way that was different than what they have grown up learning. And it's like, it was so obvious. Like, you, you knew who the Gentiles were and who were the, Gent, uh, the, the Jewish people just based off of the ways that they were living. And once again, he's saying, we're not supposed to live like that. And he says the ways that they are living, he gives a few examples. He says they are living in darkness. Like they, they're, they're kind of like fumbling around, not knowing where to go. He says they are calloused, which means, you know, like if uh, you've ever worked out or you've like, carried heavy things and you get hard skin, right? You know, I'm talking about being calloused, that they're calloused on their hearts, that they have grown indifferent, that they can feel nothing and they've given up. They could care less that what they're doing in front of them is the most important thing and nothing else is. And so the first thing that we see here, what does sin do? It numbs you. Sin numbs you. It numbs your heart. And I don't have to like convince you of this. Each of you know what I'm talking about. Like when you do something that's wrong the first time, it feels very scary, doesn't it? or it feels like you're gonna get caught, or like you know it's wrong the first time, like the first time you cheated on a test, you felt really uncomfortable with it. Or maybe the first time you stole something, whether it's from your parents or from a store, I mean, it was completely, like it felt wrong. Or for those of you who maybe have scrolled on the internet at times or places that you're not supposed to be looking, the first time you're doing it, you're like, I, I feel uncomfortable, but you keep 
going. And what happens? The second time you do it, it feels a little less bad. The third time you do it, a little less bad. And over time, you become numb to the things that you once felt uncomfortable with because you've grown indifferent to it. Sin will numb you. No one becomes a murderer overnight. No one becomes an addict overnight. Over time, it's numbing our hearts. It's a slow process of becoming more and more numb to sin. But sin isn't just there to like make you not feel anything. Sin doesn't just numb you. Sin also kills you. Sin kills you, which is like brutal to say, but it is absolutely true. Sin kills you. Have any of you ever heard of the way that Eskimos like supposedly used to hunt wolves? I mean, I, I hear the story and I read up on it. It's, it's iffy whether or not it's true, but I think it's helpful to, to understand uh, what, what the, the lore is, is that Eskimos would dip their knives in animal blood and let it freeze over, over and over until you have this giant like blood popsicle. And they would put it outside and in order to hunt wolves, they would put it outside and of course the wolves would eventually smell it and they would come up and they would begin to lick the blood. And of course, for a wolf, it tastes great. You just keep licking it. And over time, as they're licking the blood popsicle, their tongue becomes numb because of how cold it is. And they just start going to town on this popsicle. And over time, as the blood begins to, to, to be eaten, eventually the wolf reaches the sharp part of the knife and cuts their tongue open. But what's the blood in their mouth taste like? Blood. And so they begin to drink more and more rapidly because of the taste of blood. And what happens? The wolf legitimately falls to the ground and killing itself because it's licked a knife to death because of going after something that tasted so good. It's a helpful picture for us because I believe that that's what sin does to us. It, it tastes good, it numbs you, but over time it kills you. And when scripture talks about killing you, it's not just, I mean, it's, it's talking about physical death. The, the reason why there's death in this world is because of sin. It's broken everything. You were not made to die. You were not designed to die, but sin has actually brought that into this world, which is why death feels so foreign and wrong, because it wasn't supposed to be this way. Sin has brought death into this world, physically. But probably even more importantly, it brings death spiritually. In verse 18, it says that we are, the Gentiles are alienated from God because of their sin. Sin separates you from God. It kills your relationship with God. If God is holy, it keeps us away from him. You see, Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. Meaning, the minimum wage for anyone who has ever sinned is death, physically and spiritually. Brings us to our third question. Who is this impact? Because that's really important. If this is what's going on, who is this actually about? It's about you. It's about me. It impacts every single one of us. When we read Ephesians 4 and it's talking about like the Gentiles versus another group of people, like it can feel like an us versus them mentality, right? Like it's like we can, we can point out and we can see people who are worse than us. 
And so when we're reading passages like this, it feels like it's about them. It's about the people who are the true evil ones in this world, not me because I'm not that bad. Sin impacts every single one of us. It is a lie to believe that it just impacts the people who are worse than you. Because I promise you, before a holy God, you are far worse than you think. Sin impacts every single one of us. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, is talking about, it's earlier on in the book of Ephesians, it's talking about the same people that he's talking to in in chapter 4. And it says this, And you, the people he's writing to, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the curses of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now in work of the sons of disobedience, among whom all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He's talking to the people that are following Jesus at this time. He says, you were dead in your sins. In Romans 3.23, it says, for all have sinned. Every single one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us has missed the mark. Every single one of us has lived in a way that is for ourselves other than living in a way like God's name is written on our souls. There's not a single person who is not guilty. And what's crazy is it's not only like the way that it is, a lot of us like it that way. There's this guy named Brian Dahl, uh, and he came up with this fantastic invention. And he made, I'll start, I'll let you know, he made $15 million in the 70s off of this, which is incredible that anybody would make that kind of money. It's not a billion, it's not a trillion, but still. He made $15 million off of the pet rock. Ooh, the pet rock. Everybody wanted a pet in the 70s. Everybody wants a pet now. But you know what? In the 70s, some parents were like, we don't want to deal with a dog. We don't want to deal with a cat. And so Brian Dahl said, you know what? Instead, I'm going to sell pet rocks. And literally what he would do is he would gather rocks and put them in a cardboard box with a set of instructions on how to care for your pet rock. And he would sell them for $5. It cost him almost nothing to make these. Like it was brilliant coming up with this. He made $15 million in the 70s off of people buying rocks. Do you want to buy a rock? No. No, you can just go get a rock. If you want a pet rock, go outside, grab a rock, it's free. But you know what? Brian Dahl was a fantastic salesman and convinced people that there was value in something that was invaluable. Sin is a fantastic salesman. It is a fantastic salesman. It promises you everything and leaves you with nothing. You see, sin desires, it's trying to convince us that a life for sin for ourselves is far greater than a life following after our creator. Tries to convince that a life following after God, living for God, pales in comparison for a life for yourself. Sin is a fantastic salesman. And it has convinced every single one of us. And if we have fallen short, which scripture says we have, we are defined by our sin before God. And I am no exception to that. I am no exception. I struggle with sin. I struggle with comparison and trying to look better than other people. I struggle with getting too busy where I focus on ministry more than I focus on people or I focus on the Lord. I wrestle with sin Every single one of us has fallen short. There's not a single soul in this room who hasn't. 
Sin comes for all. Which leads to our last question. If this is such a big deal, what can we do about it? What can you do about it? You want the answer? You can do nothing. You can do nothing. There is not a single thing that you can do to deal with your sin. That passage in Ephesians 2, it says that we were dead in our sins. What are dead people good at? Being dead. If we are dead in our relationship with God, there is nothing that you personally can do to fix your sin. And for those of you who've tried, you know what I'm talking about. You've tried sin management. You've tried spinning the plates of trying to fix your life and for them to all come crashing down. You've tried ignoring it, pretending like it's no big deal and not sharing it with anyone and just kind of keeping it to yourself. And many of you, you've tried just trying to pretend like it doesn't bother you and so you just, you wave it around like you don't care to prove that you somehow have power over it, which you absolutely know you don't. You cannot do anything with your sin. There is nothing you can do over it. You can't remove the consequences. You can't live rightly before God and you're on the wrong side of the the line in the sand on your own. There is nothing that we can do on our own with our sin. Sin will win a hundred out of a hundred times against you. But God made a way for us When we were already defeated, God intervenes. He steps in. When we could do nothing, God offered a way. And tonight we get to talk a little bit about that, about the way that God has made. But we can't move past this too quickly. If this is truly true, if sin is really as big of a deal as we're saying it is, as the scripture says it is, then what God does is far more great than you can imagine. So to kind of recap where we've been, what is sin? It's anything anti-God. What does sin do? It numbs and it kills you. Who does sin impact? Every single one of us. And what can we do to our sin? What can we do with our sin? Absolutely nothing. On our own, we are enemies of God. But God makes a way. And I know uh, before I wrap up right here, I just want to like, even take a moment that there are many of you in this room who aren't walking with God. Maybe you've never heard the gospel, the good news. And tonight, I mean, I, I hope, or even today, as you had conversations about this with your people in your cabins or your leaders or your youth pastors, I hope that you would consider what it means to follow after Jesus and what he does for us. Would you, would you actually consider what if this is true? But then there's also many of us in this room who have placed our faith in Jesus, and we think that this message is no longer for us, that we've moved on past it, that we've outgrown Jesus. Can I just challenge you to consider today, what are the ways that you've been living for God and? For God and partying? You've tried to live for God and accolades? For God and attention? Man, if we're living for Jesus, we have to be willing to to acknowledge that we continue to struggle with sin and we need to repent from it and look to a God who is gracious and loving.
If we've placed anything on Jesus' throne, it's our responsibility to acknowledge it and ask him to help us remove it. So with that, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to continue with our day. Father, we thank you that that you are God and we are not. Lord, this situation on our own is so helpless. You have made so clear that on our own, there's a dividing line. And we either get to be on your side or on the wrong side. And Lord, we we are destined to be on the wrong side apart from you. So Lord, my prayer is that every single one of us would feel uncomfortable with our sin. Lord, that we would realize that sin is, is gross, it kills us, it tries to convince us that it's right when it's wrong. And Lord, you desire for better for us. You've offered better for us. And so Lord, would you help us to, to know that we need to look elsewhere to save us from our sin, to save us from death, and to have life with you. God, thank you that, that you are a God who cares about each and every one of us. You know our stories because you've written them. Would you go before us the rest of the day and would you be glorified? We love you. Praise things in Jesus' name. Amen.